You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them blue for me and you. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis Day. I actually get to say that for once. This is October 7th that we're recording, and we're going to play it back tomorrow, October 8th. Yes, and it's going to be 87 degrees today. And that means that the day the show broadcasts, we will have 75 degrees. We've got a cooling trend and decreasing clouds, which will have increased the previous night. (laughs) This gets a little confusing. Thursday night will be 52 degrees. Friday will be 73 degrees and partly sunny. Friday night will be 55 degrees. I've been watching this for about a week now. They were talking about a chance of rain, ladies and gentlemen. In Northern California, rain uh, for the weekend, but they've ramped it back to 30% chance of showers on Saturday, 74 degrees, and a slight chance of showers and partly cloudy Saturday night, 53 degrees, Sunday, 76 degrees, Sunday night, 54, warming up for Monday, which is Columbus Day, 81 degrees, Monday night, 55, and 84 on Tuesday. So we're going to be uh, below average. Hey, that's pretty amazing. Average yeah. temperature in the month of October starts out on October 1st. We usually have an average high of 84. And by October 31st, we drop down to an average high of 72. So we're going to be kind of in there a little cooler than usual for the next few days, which is a nice change of pace. I think most people here will agree. Uh, so that means that, that today is the beginning, 1st of October, and tomorrow is the last of October according to what you just read. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> we, we did the entire decrease for the month in one day. One week, yes. In, one, in 24 hours. One day. <laughs> in October, we normally get about an inch of rain in the month of October. The, the weatherspark.com, which is a great weather resource wherever you are, weatherspark.com, looks at a 30-day period. And say on October 1st, the chances, a typical average rainfall is, for that 30-day period is 0.6 inch. By the end of the month, the average rainfall for the 30-day period around that is 1.8 inches. If you look at the whole month in aggregate, it's about an inch of rain for the month of October on average. But we all know who live here, that, that almost never happens until the end of October. And then the rainy season sort of begins and then in October. It sort of coincides with when you send the kids out for Halloween trick-or-treating. Absolutely. Every parent knows that (laughs) trick-or-treating always always rains on Halloween. And by November, we're getting to the point of having, I think it's two inches of rain, something like that. And uh, let's double check here. Yeah, average for October is two to three inches of rain. December, January are high rainfall months, three to four inches. Looking at the, the predictions, uh, the Southern Oscillation that we know as El Nino and La Nina has been much studied since the 1980s, and there has always been this observation that there's a correlation with strong El Nino, high rainfall, strong La Nina, low rainfall, in between, hard to say. We're in between. 
So hard to say. Hard to say. That's right. <laughs> so in terms of the southern oscillation, it's hard to make any prediction about what the rainfall will be like this winter. Um, but uh, let's just cross our fingers for average rainfall winter. Wouldn't that be amazing? 17 to 20. Well, I'm not sure I can remember that far back to remember what normal was like. 17 to 20 inches of rainfall basically distributed between about October 31st and sometime in April, one to two inches at a time with a week or 10 days between them to allow the soil to dry out a little bit. That's what this nurseryman would like to request if we could possibly arrange that. <laughs> okay. That's your ideal. And actually, Davis is frequently like that. So yeah. That's yeah. why he lives here. It's, it's right. an ideal climate. Yeah, sometimes we get 42 inches of rain instead of 17 to 20, and we get atmospheric rivers, which bring a whole lot of it all at once, and we have flooding, and then sometimes we go, oh, let's say five to seven years with below average rainfall, and that's a drought. I have on my computer somewhere a chart showing the droughts and floods in the Sacramento Valley over the course of 100 plus years. And we go back and forth, obviously. My favorite is the years when we had both. We had in, this, in 2014, it was the middle of the severe drought that we went through earlier this decade. And in December 2014, most people don't remember this, we had 10 inches of rain, yeah. 10 inches in about two to three rainstorms. So there was flooding during a drought. That's always fun. That's California right there. <laughs> uh, let's do one of those public service announcements that we, uh, we like to talk about. How about the UC Davis Good Life Garden? Have you been there, by the way? No, I haven't. It's off of, it's near the Mondavi Center. It's, um, uh, well, you can just figure out how to get there by going to goodlifegarden.ucdavis.edu. Is it, is it open during the pandemic? That's an interesting question. I drove by and I think you can just stroll right in there. I, we should verify this, but the UC Davis Good Life Garden does contain an ever-changing edible landscape of organic, seasonal, and sustainably grown vegetables, herbs, and flowers. The garden also provides information on how to grow harvest, buy, and cook seasonally with great taste and high nutrition in mind. For more information, you could call 530-752-6741 or just get on your computer and go to goodlifegarden.ucdavis.edu. Uh, also, some great programming here. We like to always tell you about some of the other programs. Can you tell me, verify that Nameli Hawaii is on the air with original content, Lois? She is on the air. Nameli o Hawaii, you can join host Beth Post as she features the unique sounds of Hawaiian music from early icons of island music to today's innovators, exploring styles, the history of the genre, and revered songs and performers. Nameli o Hawaii runs Thursday, 2.30 to 4.30 p.m. For the replay time for that and all the other great programming, just visit catered.org and check the schedule. Did you say that Gitana is back on the air? She is not going into the studio, but she has recorded a couple of shows that have one played last week, and there'll be one the end of the month that's new. Okay. So she's getting there. It's Heart to Heart, which is Jitan telling you how to live a life more lovingly and happily. Is that a good summary? Good summary, yeah. Okay. Okay. All kinds of things to talk about today. What have you got in front hey, of you? I just got an email message like just before we sat down to record this and I want to read it for you. I'm not sure you've even seen it yet. This is from Jane Reed and she is up in Fair Play, California in the foothills. She says it's elevation 2300 feet, USDA zone 9A, heat zone 7. Very good. I don't know what heat zone is, but there you go. That'd be, a okay. whole, that'd, be, that'd be a good topic for a, uh, for a, uh, I'll write that one down. Discuss heat zones. Okay. 
Dear Don and Lois, your recent mention of bamboo spurs me to ask if you think it might be reasonable money-wise to purchase clumping bamboo to cut and use as stakes for the plants in my garden, which tend to flop over. I seem to be using a lot of stakes, and over time, their costs can be a little distressing to my frugal self. Over the long run, would I be ahead by growing my own stakes? Uh, yes, bamboo is very easy to grow, as many people know, and we can talk a little bit more about its reputation and the reality in a moment. But uh, the clumping bamboos that she mentions are rather thin-stemmed, and so they would be in some ways ideal for stakes. It takes a little while for them to get going, um, and they do benefit from, in at least appearance-wise, from having some light thinning done every few years to make them look better. A, a bamboo shoot turns into what we call a culm, C-U-L-M, in the business. And that's what expands up and gives you all the leaves and stuff. And a culm lasts three to five years, typically, and then dies out. And um, a big, well-established clump of bamboo, and I have a number of these on my property, you can get a fair bit of dead stuff in the interior. Uh, it's not unsightly, but it's in fact a different color than the, the rest of the, the clump, which is green. It gradually fades to its own color. And uh, you can, with a narrow saw, get in there and saw out bigger ones. If it's a smaller clumping bamboo, like let's say Alphonse Carr or one of the Bambusa Multiplex group, which are hardy in our zones, um, you could just use loppers or pruners. Just bear in mind, it's a very tight clump. So it's pretty narrow. You need something pretty narrow to get in there. And I've had people come out to my property and harvest bamboo for the poles because I have big clumps of bamboo. I have bamboo that have uh, culms that are an inch to two inches in diameter. And so I've had people for a Philippine dance troupe. I've had an artist from the Bay Area. I've had people looking for very specific things. And the one thing they don't realize is it's a fair bit of labor to get in there get those cut out, it's a little scratchy, you know, it's not the most comfortable thing to do, so wear long sleeves and gloves. And uh, you need to cut off the side shoots and stuff, but yes, it's very simple and practical. And uh, you then, for garden use, you would just use them green, I suppose, or you could just let them sit until they dry. For those other purposes, uh, such as the dance troupe or the, the art project, they wanted to cure them or dry them in a particular way, that's also fine. If you're curious about that, I have loads of information about that because as editor of the magazine of the American Bamboo Society, I have published articles on how to cure or treat bamboo for, you know, for those types of purposes. Um, so yeah, can be, I have can a couple. Done. It can be done, it's easy to do. Choose your bamboo carefully uh, for your situation. Uh, we'll come back to that topic in just a moment. So I have a couple of questions. First, I'm gonna ask something that, that you said when you were talking about um, the, the bamboo dies. So you want to use dead bamboo for these well, stakes or, or, you or cut down? You can use green or, or dead. Uh, the point okay. being though, that you're going into your clump and you're looking at it and thinking, maybe this would look nice if I thinned it out by removing some of the ones that are dead or, or aged. And it's pretty easy to tell them from the others because they've changed color. I like, so what, I, I leave them, I'll, I'll let me, hold on. I leave them uh, because I find that they are habitat. Uh, there's all kinds of things that love to live in a hollow bamboo comb, including various types of pollinators. And if it's a big enough bamboo, there's all sorts of things that live in there, little birds and you name it. In fact, there are some species in tropical areas that have evolved with bamboo and live in them entirely. Uh, so I don't make an effort to go into my very large clumps of, of giant timber bamboo or textless bamboo and thin them out. 
but the appearance would be marginally improved if I did. I mean, it would look more healthy and fresh. So I'm from what you're describing, and I haven't seen your bamboo. I haven't been out there and looked at it. Uh, am I to understand that a clump of bamboo ha it 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 expands outward where the new shoots are on the outside and the old shoots are on the inside? Is that right? Largely, yes. Okay, so why wouldn't I just take a chainsaw and come from the backside and cut out, you know, two thirds of it, and that gets all the dead stuff and <laughs> some of the living stuff on the backside? But who cares? Two reasons. And, and it'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Yes, and it's not. First of all, it's not always expanding to the outside. There is some some of the combs reverse and come, you know, work around to the inside. It varies by species. What you're you should have seen the look on his face when I said that. Proposing it a was shock <laughs> and oh no. You're proposing a clear cut method, <laughs> which. Uh, works yes aesthetically it would probably not be as pleasing as what i was proposing so we assume that you're growing this bamboo for a couple of yes you could go in and you could cut the whole thing down every few years harvest them and all. it would grow back wouldn't it it will certainly grow back yes i mean so bamboo is grown as a crop in most of the world yeah. i mean i've i have seen and published many many articles about the use of bamboo in in almost everywhere else north america and europe uh, we largely grow bamboo as a garden ornamental Everywhere but else, Jane is Jane is wanting it as a crop. Right. She wants those shoots. Yes, uh, well, she actually wants the culms, and some people grow it for shoots. I mean, to eat, the shoots are edible. I'm, oh, little mini shoots, yeah. Yeah, and uh, hers would be kind of small, but that's a whole other thing. I I have a friend in the bamboo society who has a bamboo farm in Georgia. She raises bamboo for shoots, the kind you eat. She will mm. actually harvest them during the shooting season is spring in the case of her running bamboos clean them pack them and mail them to you for a fee obviously she sells them by mail order and they're uh, you know she's chosen them to eat. to eat she's chosen them for their flavor so she's growing bamboo as a food crop she also uses and many people near her in georgia where people tend to have more acreage and they've got running bamboo and they're just cutting it down because it's run where they don't want it they use it for animal feed in much of the world, they use it for construction. It is a very strong, durable wood, if properly cured and treated, to use for housing and for, you know, I have pictures of bridges built from bamboo, of massive structures built from bamboo. And artists, or some of my favorite articles, are artists who have used bamboo to make very large and elaborate structures. If you happen to be a fan of the Coachella um, uh, concert, the, whatever you call it, the, the the, where everybody comes down there to Coachella Valley for all these rock groups and so on that come there. Uh, there's one artist in the American Bamboo Society who builds enormous structures from bamboo. He finds 80 to 100 foot long culms and builds these enormous structures out of them, lights them up from the, you know, from below. And I have pictures of it. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's a huge undertaking, especially when you consider that after Coachella's over, he has to take the whole thing down and take it away, but uh, he's using it for art. So she's looking at it for a particular crop usage, and if you want to get blunt with it and go in there with your chainsaw and cut them all down every four or five years and harvest them and let them re-sprout, by all means, that's certainly how it's done in many parts of the world. So I think we need to have a longer discussion about bamboo, which I know we're going to have later in the show. But in response to what Jane was talking about, there's one other possibility she lives up in the foothills. That means it's a wooded area. And it could be an area where people have orchards. So I'm thinking back to my own yard. I only have one plum tree, but I have one plum tree. 
And that plum tree sends up vigorous shoots every year mm. and they get to be, you know, five, six, eight feet tall. If I don't cut them for a year, they might be 10 or 12 feet tall. Mm. Well, when they're, they're absolutely straight, they're going straight up. That's because I pruned my tree for size to keep it low. And so every year I have to, to cut off all those new, new growth, those new shoots, shoots those new things that would make perfectly good stakes if you just stick them in the ground. Sure. And they're, they're not thick, they're thin, but that's another possibility is see if you've got a local orchard in the neighborhood that sure. does pruning and prunes off those tall, skinny, flippy things. They're likely, if they're in another orchard, they're likely to be shaped in or cut in a way that may not be suitable. But if you've got your own tree, you can take those mm -hmm. suckers or water sprouts off or what you're describing. Now, I had someone ask me once about cutting bamboo and sticking it in the ground. And he looked a little scared because people are phobic about bamboo. <laughs> and uh, his question was, what if it roots? <laughs> Is it gonna run all over the place? I said, well, that's an interesting question. Most bamboo, we're assuming she's cutting it green. Most bamboo will not root from a comb. Some will. That's because you've cut the stem, you haven't gotten oh. the base. No, that's too broad a generalization, but there are nodes, just like on a regular cutting. It's a grass, so it functions a little differently than most of the other things we're doing. One of them, giant timber bamboo, bamboo's old hemite, will root from cuttings. It's not a running bamboo. As far as I know, all the runners, the phyllostachys, which are the best known running bamboos, you stick it in the ground, it's not going to root. Okay, so nothing to be concerned about there. I did feel that this was taking bamboo phobia one step further, but you know, we answer the questions patiently. And uh, it's- and if, an, you don't, if you don't know, yeah. then it's, it's a reasonable question to ask. If there you there are plants, plant. there are plants that will root if you stick them in the ground that way. I remember a very attractive and interesting hedge in La Jolla, where I grew up, where someone had taken branches of oleander and branches of poinsettia, stuck them in the ground a few feet apart, alternating. They all rooted, so it was a bamboo poinsettia. Excuse me, an oleander poinsettia hedge, and. Oh, nice. uh, it was very pretty, yes. <laughs> Some plants will root very easily. Willows, I mean, I have a hedge of willow on my property that I created long ago when someone gave me, if you're familiar with the pussy willow that's used in flower arrangements, they gave me some. We had it in a flower arrangement and it rooted in the water because we left that flower arrangement there for a really long time. So I thought, oh, I'll just stick this in the ground. It turned into a really nice bush. Pussy willow is a shrub form of willow, not a tree really. And it was doing really well with surprisingly limited water. And so I thought, well, this is great. It's right on the county road. I took 13 branches from it in a wet year, stuck them in the mud in January when the plant was dormant, three feet apart, ran a drip line to it, 10 of them rooted. And now as you drive down the county road, I have about a 20 foot hedge, 20 foot tall hedge, about 40 feet long of Pussy willow, it's, uh, it attracts beneficials in the early, early spring, late winter when it's blooming. Uh, it's really pretty in my opinion and unbelievably easy to grow and root. So his caution was not unwarranted, but the good news is that no, if you just stick it in the ground, you're not going to root bamboo and have it in another part of your yard. More to the point, she very specifically asked for clumping bamboo. Yes. And there are many bamboos that are runners and some that are clumpers and clumping just means it's a very tight growth habit. And the best ones to look for if you're in USDA zones nine or 10 are the Bambusa multiplex group. Multiplex is just a species. And there's things like Golden Goddess, Alphonse Carr, Silver Stripe, several named varieties within the multiplex group, which have skinny, tall shoots that would be very suitable as stakes. 
Okay, so this leads us into the discussion we were planning to have today about bamboo. And Don sent me the most wonderful, amazing little document that has pictures of the roots and how things attach in the roots. Yes. And so it says, talking about bamboo, you keep talking about how there are running and clumping types of bamboo. Are there really not runners? Are they, are those clumping types really not runners or do they just run more slowly? That was a really so good. Here's the answer. It was a really good, really good question that I got. And another, it was another case of a couple that was asking about bamboo, and she liked the idea and the look. And the husband was again, I'm not sure why this works this way so often. Was the skeptic, and he, when I said there are types that don't run, he kind of you know folded his arms and looked at me. I said, no, it's true. There are there are categories of bamboo, and unfortunately, the best known ones are the ones that you might say cause lawsuits by how they spread. And then there's a whole lot that don't spread that way. So go ahead. I'm going to describe what the pictures are, and then I'm going to let Don pronounce the Latin words that he's got written beside them. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is suggesting terminology for four classic forms of rhizome and comb development. Now, rhizomes are the parts that are underground that are like roots. And then combs are the shoots that come up and go above ground and get leaves. Did I get that part right? Yep. Very good. Okay. So okay. A. A is, there is, first of all, imagine a root with one stalk coming out of it. Okay. Then out of the side of that root, there's another root with another stalk coming out of it. And outside of that one, there's a, another root with another stalk. So each root is tightly attached to the root next to it. Correct. And that is called rhizome pachymorph with short necks, combs, you're going to have to say the next word, Don. Unicespitose. Unicespitose. <laughs> that means one per root, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So then, and that would be a clumping form, I assume. Tight, very tight clumper, yes. Tight clumper. Okay. So the next one, B, the drawing shows, again, a root with one stalk coming out of it. But out of that root, there may be a couple of other roots coming out, and they, they are longer. So the columns that come out of the secondary roots are wider, yes. a little bit wider, but not a lot. And so then they've got, so I would guess that would be a loose clump. Right. And this is called rhizome pachymorph with consistently long necks, colms diffuse. Yes. <laughs> what does colms diffuse mean? They're spread uh, out? Yes. Very good. More, just more spread out. Okay. Okay. All so right. two, I'm going to stop you there for a moment. Pachymorph refers to the clumpers. And I always remember this one as pachyderm with an elephant's neck. Uh, I would refer to it as pack more in. Pack and morph. Uh, it just refers to a tight rhizome. So next is uh, C. Go ahead. These are the, these okay. are the ones C that are C is going. rhizome leptomorph, Colm's yeah. diffuse. Yeah. And this one, the root structure looks like it is underground and it's horizontal. And it is, it is going along and then periodically another root will come out with a comb coming up from it. 
Yeah. So, but there's the, the horizontal one is just keep going and the things come up occasionally. Keeps going and going and going. These and are the, that's, these the, are, that's, that's the big the, runner. These are the famous ones, yes. Yeah. And then the next one is kind of interesting. It's sort of um, a combination of the two. And it has that horizontal thing underground, root underground, that's going along. And then periodically there's something coming out of it. But the thing coming out of it isn't a single root. It's a single root which then splits into yeah. a couple of other roots and then all of them make corms. So you would have a bunch of things coming up at wider intervals. Yes, and more open. And this one is called rhizome leptomorph colms pleurocaspitose. Yeah, pleurocaspitose. So we have two basic categories, which are the pachymorph and the leptomorph, and that just basically pachymorph means clumping, and leptomorph means running. I always remember it as lepto-leaping pachymorph like an elephant's trunk. That's how I happen to remember it. Other people use different methods. There's actually two or three other descriptions of bamboo rhizome structure. And first of all, I want to tell you what a rhizome is, because this is kind of important. It is a stem. It's a, a horizontally growing stem. Uh, let me see, I, I even pulled up um, uh, Wikipedia's version of it so that I could tell you how they say it because I think their description is good. In botany, a rhizome is a modified subterranean plant stem that sends out roots and shoots from its nodes. Remember what a node is. A node is where growth and roots can occur. So that's, you know, you have nodes on all kinds of plants. When I tell you to take a cutting, I want you to make sure a node is in the soil because that's where the roots gonna come out. Rhizomes are also called creeping root stalks, which is easier perhaps to remember. And uh, familiar rhizomes are things like uh, ginger, bearded irises, those are rhizomes. And anyone who's grown bearded irises has watched them grow in a straight line, branch out and bloom, grow in a straight line, branch out and bloom. So irises have rhizomes that grow much the same way bamboo does. Um, bamboo is, famous for the rhizome leptomorph combs diffuse. That's the kind where the rhizome just keeps running in a straight line and goes five, seven, 10, 12 feet in a single growing season. And all along there are nodes. Not every one of them will sprout, but here and there at intervals of a foot or two, maybe more, one of them will send up a shoot that comes up and then you see the bamboo. And then three, four feet further down the rhizome, another one will come up. But the main thing to remember is that rhizome is continuing to grow in a straight line. So bamboo is coming in under your hands from your neighbor's yard. Uh, it came straight, it was pointed straight at it and it just kept growing and will continue to do so unless you sever that. Whereas the clumping types grow and terminate or end in a shoot which turns into a comb. Then they branch from there and they do that again and they branch from there and they do that again. There's two basic clumping types, one that's very, very tight, where it grows a couple inches, literally only, and then a shoot comes up at the end of that rhizome. And then once that started to develop, it branches, and one or two go out a couple inches and come up. So, well, the question was, are they really different, or is it just one spreads more slowly? I guess technically or semantically, you could say it is true that one is spreading more slowly, but they also branch and grow it's out really in different. It's very different growth habit, right? So the, yeah. the plants that you might already have in your landscape that are similar rhizome growers include flowering quince, shinomaly, uh, barberries, heavenly bamboo, the nandina, which is not a bamboo at all. And if you dig one of those up, you'll see you're not, you don't have a single stem 
that would turn into a shrub or a tree. You have a bunch of things growing from a collection of rhizomes. If you've ever dug up an andina or dug up a flowering quince, it's hard to do, by the way, you can see how to divide it right away. You can see, oh, this is just a very tight bunch of rhizomes and I could just cut through it, give half of this clump to my friend, replant the other one back where I wanted or move it somewhere else. So these are shrubs that are like clumping bamboos. There are no shrubs that I can think of that are like running bamboos. But there's grass. There, well, and it's a grass, and this is how all grasses grow. So in your lawn, we sell you turf grass, and you buy a, a bunch of grass seed, and it's got rye, perennial ryegrass and Kentucky bluegrass and uh, some kind of creeping red fescue. Creeping red fescue gives you a clue. Uh, or it might have some of the clumping type fescues, same genus, but different growth habit. So grasses that we grow very familiarly in our lawns, it's much the same thing. And some of the grasses are quite famous for how much they run, such as Bermuda grass or Kikuyu grass, or those of you dealing with that in Southern California. Those are akin to the running bamboos in what they're capable of doing in just a couple of seasons. One thing about that running habit, it does make it predictable. You know, if you see a shoot pop up 10 feet from the main plant, it's pretty easy to trace it back to where it came from. So it does make the process of removal at least more systematic, but uh, they can run quite a ways in the case of the running bamboos before a new shoot comes up. The very first running bamboo I ever planted, I put it in my garden in San Diego, cute little black bamboo grew for two years. The old saying is bamboo, the first year it sleeps, the second year it creeps, the third year it leaps. And in the uh, second year, it expanded a little bit. I'm going, why is everyone so freaked out about this plant? In the third year, 10 feet away, in my little lawn area, up popped a shoot of my black bamboo. 10 feet away, nothing that I could see in between the plant I planted and the shoot that had just come up. uh-oh. So I went and I watered the whole area really thoroughly. I dug up that shoot and I started pulling up the rhizome, which went straight back to the plant I had put in three years prior. I dug the whole thing up and I gave it away to a friend who put it in a container. That's the best place for running bamboo. So the question on that one is, if, if I were to see that thing 10 feet away yeah. and I dug out the new one, you know, dug it out, cut, which means I've severed the, the runner now. Yes. Now, are the, are the nodes in the runner, once it's severed, are they likely to break and, and put up new shoots? They're capable or does of it, it just die back? They're capable of it, but it's unlikely because they don't have the energy that's being provided by the parent plant. And so this gets into the- No, 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 you, I, the parent plant is there. I dug up the new one. Right, and then what's your question? So, so now the parent plant has this, this, this right. rhizome going out and, and then it's chopped off at the, at the end, 10 feet from the parent plant. Are the nodes on there going to send up new shoots? As long as they're connected to the parent plant, they're capable of doing it. So your best bet, okay. if, you go, if you don't want them to do that, and this is really key, is to go back to the parent plant and cut it there. So when, uh, when people, I frequently answer the question, how do I get rid of bamboo that's invading from my neighbor's side? The first is to go talk to your neighbor. Dig a trench. 
the, yes, dig a trench, find the rhizomes, cut them, sever them. My father wrote an article for the American Bamboo Society 25, 30 years ago in which he summarized it, cut it off, meaning cut it away from the parent, sever it from the parent. Now you're dealing with the progeny in your yard. That's easier because there's no more energy coming to them from the main parent plant. And then uh, you may need to put a barrier in of some sort if your neighbor is going to keep that bamboo. Barriers have their own issues. But then you just follow those rhizomes, just follow those rhizomes, dig them out, dig out all of the shoots that have come up. And how difficult that will be really depends on how long it's been doing this. In the first year, it's easy. The second year, it's pretty easy. By the third year, it's a real challenge because it has branched and grown and you now have several established relatively autonomous plants in your yard. But they're your problem now, not your neighbor's problem. You just have to get rid of them on your side. But if they're still connected by that long rhizomatous umbilical cord, they still have energy coming to them from the main parent plant. So you need to cut it off. And if you want to get rid of it without digging it out, because sometimes that's not practical, the next part of his four-part process was cut it down, cut it down again, cut it down again, Cut as it long as it again. sprouts, you cut it down. Cut, cut, stomp, whatever it takes to keep it from reestablishing, and eventually the roots, the whole root zone will die out, but not if it's still attached to the parent plant. So that's how you get rid of it. Now that's that's the, the other end of the spectrum. But yes, there to get back to the core question, there are actually six different rhizome structures. We've talked about four of them, but they really boil down to two. Long rhizomes, which send out combs all along their length and keep going. And, and they're underground. And under, they're, or they're right on the surface. I mean, they're right okay. at, essentially at the surface of the ground or underground. They can, they can dive down. If they hit a barrier, they'll go up and over it or they'll go under it. Uh, usually they go over, not under. That's the good news. Or they'll go along it. They'll follow. They'll take the path of least resistance. So if you put in a barrier, like a concrete barrier or the bamboo barrier products you can buy that are really, really thick plastic, um, it'll hit that and just go right along it. Okay, that's fine. You know where it is. Uh, it'll hit your foundation. It'll go along the foundation, not under your house typically. Uh, so you know where they're going, but they will continue to grow more or less in a straight line. Um, the, the clumping types I have on my property, tight clumping bamboos, such as the giant timber bamboo, bamboos, the old hammy that my father and I planted in the mid 1990s. Okay, they're 45 feet tall easily. And each plant is only about six feet across. Wow. 95, 2005, 2015. So 25, what, how many years has that <laughs> been in the ground for quite a while? That one has a unique habit. Um, my parents planted Oldemai giant timber bamboo at their house in La Jolla in 1952. And 50, 60 years later, that entire clump was only about eight feet across. It, what, they, what it does is it goes out and it terminates in a shoot, like we talked about, the tight clumpers do this. And it branches about 90 degrees. And then that branches about 90 degrees. So basically the clump begins to grow in on itself. And the rhizome will go up on top of the previous rhizomes and the previous rhizomes. In the time that it only grew about eight feet across, it had raised the grade where it was by five feet, simply by growing up onto itself. And I took a picture of it the people who finally bought the house, I think, took it out while they were remodeling. But in that time, whole new plants had essentially been created on top of the original clump. And in all that time, it never spread more than, more than a few feet. And we're talking about, you know, multiple generations here. So I think it's safe to say that in that particular species, its inward growth habit means it is never going to be a problem, except for the fact that it's enormously tall. I mean, that's, that's the only thing that it does. And if it's 
it's that enormously tall and not very wide, yeah. does it blow over in our our typical annual windstorms? No, we. I have uh, the only thing that ever happens to bamboo when we get a tremendous wind here is if there's a new shoot that's popped up above the main clump and it's really gusty, that shoot may snap off way up there. I, I sometimes find them like spears down on the ground afterward. I have pictures of bamboo in Florida that went through hurricanes where all other all the other trees were destroyed because bamboo has this amazing limber strength. It can bend completely horizontal like palm trees and pop right back up. Uh, the, there were two hurricanes that hit Florida a few years ago back to back. And the first one came in, it was a tremendous tropical storm by the time it got there. And the, the bamboo was hitting the ground, popping back up and hitting the ground, popping back up. And that one completely saturated the soil to the point that it was essentially a swamp. The next hurricane came in, hit the swamp-like conditions, and some of the clumps just plain toppled over at that point. And so that grower, who was a commercial grower, took a chainsaw to them, just like you were suggesting. And I'm sure he did something with all that wood, yanked those clumps back up, settled them on the ground into the mud, they're good to go. So it doesn't, the roots don't go very far in terms of what's sustaining this 50, 60, 70 foot tall clump. It's like palms. They have strong roots, but they don't need an extensive root system. Sounds like some of the grass weeds that I pull out of my yard, yes. really tall compared to the, to the size of the root. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, I mean, bamboo are, are largely tropical and subtropical plants, and they're almost all from areas where it rains a lot. And so they make a significant amount of top growth when there's a lot of rain. They don't really need much of a root system at that point. Okay. Well, that was a long thing talking about bamboo. Bottom line. I another one for bottom, wait, bottom line, choose the right bamboo for your location. There's nothing wrong with planting a running bamboo if you live on acreage and you have a place for a lovely grove of bamboo. Those are quite beautiful, actually, if you have the space and it's not going to invade your neighbors and you know that, you know, you've planned for that. In almost any residential setting, the clumping types are more suitable. I've mentioned bamboosa multiplex for our area. If you're listening in a much colder climate, there are bamboos that can go down to 20 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Um, and uh, the Fargesias, for example, which are very tight clumpers and beautiful, very graceful plants. And so if you're curious about bamboo and you're living in a colder climate, the American Bamboo Society, bamboo.org, has great resources. I'm a member and we've helped with get lots of user-friendly information up there on their website. And one of the things I've done is create a, a chart that shows bamboo by USDA zones. You can go all the way down to zones four or five in the case of some of the very, very cold hardy bamboo. Okay. Well, um, the next topic I'd like to propose is another B word, blueberries. So this was a, a email conversation that Don had with uh, Daryl. And first Daryl writes, will you stock or can you order blueberries? I'll be looking for two each of Misty and Sunshine. Those are two varieties. Unless you wave me off and tell me they'll never work here. Yeah, we're in, says, I said, what did I say? I said, said, I'll be stocking both of those. Here we go. Yes, I'll, I'll do it. Okay. Explain about containers and things. I'll do my part here. Yes. Okay. So I will be stocking both of those, among many others. I've done very well with blueberries, growing them in containers and applying sulfur to modify the pH. Plenty of water at all times. Very important. I've got five plants in barrels and livestock troughs. And by the third year, we've been getting more blueberries than we know what to do with. I do get the one called Sunshine Blue in November. I want to mention that one a little bit more. And Misty, either then or a bit later. Um, there's a bunch of varieties of 
blueberries. These are the southern highbush blueberries. And they have expanded the range of where blueberries can grow phenomenally. Those of you listening in San Diego can grow sunshine blue. Uh, blueberries that Lois grew up with needed a thousand or more chilling hours in order to fruit. Sunshine Blue will fruit with less than a hundred chilling hours. We talk about chilling hours a lot during the fruit tree season. It's a certain number of hours at a cooler temperature that a plant needs in order to go into and come out of dormancy, flower correctly, and fruit. And blueberries had always been, you know, a hundred years ago, just northern tier state type of thing. And then along came the rabbit eye blueberries and some that were grown in southeastern states and then the southern high bush have been, there's a whole lot of them on the market now. These two, Misty and Sunshine Blue, are just two of probably 20 uh, varieties that are proving to be very, very adaptable in a wide range of climate conditions, and I will say a wider range of soil conditions than we thought possible in the past. So yes, those are two good ones. Next question. So, so on, on the blueberries, you have 20 varieties. Are they all the same flavor, or do they, any, any of them have that deeper blueberry flavor that I get with the northern blueberries? Um, that's an interesting question. I have not done taste trials on them, uh, but I have found that the flavor difference on the ones I have mostly has to do with the stage of ripening when you pick them. And uh, they, range, they start out rather tart sweet, which is how we kind of like them. And as they stay longer on the plant, they get sweeter. And like any fruit, if they stay on there too long, they get kind of bland and just sweet. They lose the acidity. Um, I'm going to do a little more systematic trial of the five varieties, and I've planted two more now, um, to see if there's significant differences on that. Uh, people from blueberry country keep saying that these don't taste like the ones they grew up with. But you know, that's one of the most, that's one of the most famously inaccurate assessments anybody can give of a fruit because you're referring to a memory, not an actual taste test. No offense to those of you who remember the tomatoes you grew up with being better than the ones you're eating now, but you know, you're 40 years older and uh, things that happened to your taste buds in the intervening years as well. So <laughs> it may well be. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna catch you on that one because <laughs> You can take, you can taste a, a blueberry that you get from the supermarket. Yeah. I mean, a, a tomato. Yes. You can taste a tomato you get from the supermarket and a tomato you've grown from, at home yes. and compare the tastes. Yes. And usually the homegrown ones have more flavor. Yeah, so there's, and there's, but not a memory thing with tomatoes. Now with oh, blueberries. Oh, 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 I'm going to back up. A tomato is a climacteric fruit, which ripens more after you pick it, uh, but in a different way. So I, I suspect we're picking blueberries about as fully ripe as they're going to be once they're at full color. Um, whereas tomatoes, yes, the, the fact that they pick them just green ripe and then ship them gassed and chilled to the store to control the ripening does have an effect on the flavor constituents. And that's okay. actually something you can show uh, literally scientifically as well as by more more subjective taste trials. I want to see the taste trials on blueberries because um, I'm guessing that smaller fruited uh, plant, uh, smaller fruited blueberries on plants that have been subjected to more stress probably have a different flavor profile than lushly grown blueberries that have been selected by the breeders for bigger fruit and more colorful fruit. We may be getting into that phenomenon where the selection of these new varieties may be more by appearance and size, that could be. 
it's certainly possible. So I don't know. To answer I still think you should do some research and find out if there's yeah. ever been blueberry tasting tests sure there are, with yeah. the northern blueberries and the southern blueberries. So all we grow here typically are the southern high bush, but we also do get certain ones that are northern high bush hybrids that appear to be quite adaptable. And they'll typically say on the label, but if you're buying a blueberry in this region from a well-run garden center, hopefully they're choosing them for the region. And there's yeah. even some new cool ones that are pink when they're ripe, like pink lemonade. And there's one that's almost black when it's ripe. I mean, blueberries are hot in the, the nutrition biz and the food biz. And so breeders are looking for more dwarf types, ones that have more fruit on a more compact plant and so forth. Lots to choose from in the world of blueberries. I do want to mention that particular one, Sunshine Blue. Anybody listing almost anywhere in California can grow that one. And if you're down and in this... Good. And they taste good. Yeah, I've grown it. So it tastes very yeah. good. So... Okay, so another part of Daryl's uh, email said, another question, what is your favorite source for water troughs? I keep getting close to buying a shiny new one for lots of money and then I hesitate to buy these great waterproof containers and punch holes in the bottom for drainage. I'm really looking for a beat, beat up leaky one, but <laughs> I don't know where to get one. <laughs> so do you have any, any ideas of, of anybody who sells leaky old water troughs? No, um, you, your simplest bet is to go to locally, if you're listening in the Davis-Dixon area, there's a feed store here in the Dixon region called Higby's Country Feed. And wherever you're listening, you probably, if you're anywhere near a rural uh, area with farms and things nearby, you're almost sure to have a true feed store and they either have or can order livestock troughs made either of galvanized steel or heavy plastic. And you don't have to drill a bunch of holes in them because they all come, at least everyone that I've looked at, with a big old drain plug on the bottom side, near the bottom, near enough to the bottom that you don't have to worry about maybe the half inch of water that might stand below that. So all you really have to do is just take that plug out and then save it somewhere in case you ever want to use this for another purpose and uh, fill it with soil. And you don't need to cover it any more than you need to cover the bottom of a pot when you fill it with soil. The soil will, will hold together. And uh, that'll be actually the most expensive part of this, probably, if you decide to use good quality soil, you're gonna be buying a bunch of bags of essentially potting soil. Yes, you could use topsoil that you buy from a rock yard, but then you start getting into issues with needing more organic material and so on. Uh, so most people just end up buying a bunch of bags of a good quality potting soil. Just buy it from a local hardware, a local hardware store, feed store. Feed store is the most likely. There's even feed store chains like Tractor Supply out here in California uh, that have them as well. And I'd say the bigger the better if you want to crowd a bunch of them in there. A blueberry doesn't take a lot of space. The plant is basically like a rose bush in its growth. And the varieties are about as variable as rose bushes. Some are bigger, some are smaller. And they're very attractive. And um, you can crowd two or three into a livestock trough. You could put a couple into a half barrel, wine barrel. You can buy plastic barrels that are the size of wine barrels. I've used, the smallest I've used is a 30 inch plastic pot. And that plant needed water every day this summer. So the bigger units were easier to manage. And it's really important. This is the key thing we'll get to in a moment is the watering. Continue. And so, why are you putting them in a trough instead of just putting them in the ground? They don't like the density of our soil. Okay, good. That's, that's what I was wondering about that. All right. Um, your answer to him included a lot of stuff about pH and all that other stuff. Did you want to go into that or just... Well, that's, the that most common, 
that's the most common thing you run into when you look up blueberries. They must have a pH of five or 5.5 or some number that's literally completely unattainable here. Um, pH of my well water is 8.1, right? That's high. That's what Davis tap water was before you all went to surface water. I'm still on a well. It's got a lot of salt content and the pH is over eight. So my water is alkaline. Blueberries are acid preferring plants, which is a shorthand for needing a lower pH than that or so they say. So just on, to be on the safe side, I put in two cups of soil sulfur per plant mixed into the root zone before I planted in there. And soil sulfur brings down the pH. And I've calculated how much plants need and how much you would need to apply. And if anyone's interested, I'd be happy to talk about that. But uh, sulfur is the simplest way to remedy a soil pH issue. And then, it, since it does it temporarily for basically a season or two, you continue to put it on the surface. Uh, so you take another cup and scatter that around the plant each spring. That's what I do. Each plant gets another cup of sulfur about the same time we're beginning to start irrigating and stuff like that. Um, so that's helpful to reduce the pH. But we have found that these southern highbush blueberries, you don't have to get the soil down to a pH of five or five and a half. I've never achieved that. I couldn't possibly do that. My water coming out of the tap is, is too high for me to accomplish that. And yet, they grow fine, they flower fine, they fruit fine. So it appears that the old stuff about needing this exact absolute pH is like so many other recommendations, just carried forward from generation to generation to generation, right there in extension publications, right in practically every reference you go to will tell you the same thing. And we found that it's just, at least with these, these newer varieties, it's just not the case. You don't have to worry that much about it. Yes, I would suggest applying some soil sulfur at the time of planting, continuing to put it on the surface. What they really need is a high organic content. And you asked about why I don't just put them in the ground here. I know people who do that, and the plants just sulk. Uh, they seem to have, and this is my hypothesis, very fine roots that are accustomed to uh, a whole bunch of Wisconsin deciduous hardwood leaves falling on them every year, maybe a foot or so around the plant, breaking down very steadily and creating humus and, and compost around and on the surface of the plant, uh, of the roots, and, and being there to provide protection against heat and, and to buffer the moisture needs and also probably affect the pH somewhat. So the simplest thing I do to accomplish that, since I don't have you know, a, a, a hardwood oak or maple forest nearby, is I just mulch them as we get into the spring. I just take a bag of something and it can be compost, whatever good compost you have. I put a couple inches on top of the the trough or the barrel, just as if I were mulching them in the ground. So there's always stuff breaking down above the roots, going down to the root zone. And then the really crucial thing is the watering. Yeah. So I think that this would, I would like to, to, to divert from blueberries to a mm -hmm. little more general topic. And that is that when we talk about plants and what plants to plant where, I think it's always good to see where they came from. And if they came from a situation that you can replicate, then you know they will get what they're used to. But there's a difference between what a plant is used to, what it, it thrives in, and what it tolerates. Yep. For example, the Tory pines, which, are, which grow on the cliffs by the ocean with, with winds all the time blowing and over and, and they, they, they're all twisted and dwarfed and mm -hmm. very strange looking. If you take that Tory pine 
and you take a seed and you plant it here in Davis, which they did mm -hmm. in the Arboretum, you have these huge, tall, totally straight, don't look anything like the Torrey Pines in the wild because they're growing in a different place. Yes, I'll tell you, I grew up about two miles from Torrey Pines State Park. And the park ranger who had worked so hard to establish that park was one of our neighbors, Guy Fleming, who got Torrey Pines State Park established. He gave every, our neighborhood was all subdivided at once, and he made sure each house got a seedling, Torrey Pine. Now we were literally two bluffs over from Torrey Pines. So we got the wind, but we didn't, there were no houses, we weren't right on the cliffs because they're structurally too unstable to build houses on. So the Torrey Pine that my parents planted in our backyard quickly grew uh, very tall and very straight and was about 40 feet tall within about 20 years. In fact, they unfortunately had planted it so close to the house that my father ultimately took it out. But literally only a, less than a half a mile from the equivalent species being on a cliff, it turned into a great, wonderful straight tree. And the story I was told many times over there was that Torrey Pines were a common indigenous species down there and all the straight tall ones had been logged out hundreds of years prior and all that remained were the little bonsai looking ones clinging to the cliffs because nobody had any use for those. So uh, what they need and what they want to get to your core point is absolutely true. I don't know how long a blueberry is going to last in a container here. I don't think you can do this for 20, 30, 40 years, but as long as you keep the moisture on it, make an effort to buffer the pH, keep organic material breaking down, and give them plenty of water, they seem to go on quite steadily. Now, I use the, for watering, I use a microspray system. In fact, continuing a little bit on our conversation, um, uh, what, did I, what did I say to him here? Um, he asked a little bit more about it, and I said, I got my troughs from a local company. I just removed the drain plug. Some people also drill holes. I think that's superfluous, but fine. I've always found the southern highbush varieties just aren't as fussy about pH as either, either we always assumed or as their northern highbush counterparts. That may be one of the issues. My well water, as I mentioned, is pH 8.1. I just add a couple of cups per plant of sulfur at the time of planting, a cup per plant again on the surface each spring. The basic principle is I think the roots are very fine and sensitive to drought, benefit from a steady supply of decomposing organic material to provide high cation exchange capacity, some steady nitrogen, and to help retain moisture. That all seems more important than the exact soil pH. I doubt that I've ever achieved a pH of 5.5 or so that you see as a standard recommendation. So if you just get a good potting soil with plenty of organic material, you can water about twice a week in our climate. If it's faster draining, because you got something more sand or perlite or something in it, you'll need to water more often. I use a micro spray system because that's convenient for my location, but drippers will also work so long as they're distributed across the whole surface of the soil. And all that organic material will help distribute the water anyway. Another little bit of insurance is to just top dress the planter with more soil or bark or whatever you like. Pine needles, if you live in pine country, you know, uh, oak leaves, if you live in oak country, just to retain moisture when we get into hot weather and it's very dry here. So that's real important. They have proven surprisingly easy to grow here. And uh, when one of my sprayers plugged, I didn't notice that plant nearly died from just a few days of sudden drought. So that's really the key thing. And what I did with mine first was I planted a bunch of strawberries in the same planters. I put, you know, three uh, blueberries in a livestock trough that's six feet long and two feet wide. There's all that space, so I just stuck in a bunch of strawberries. They gave great yields the first year. 
And then you know, the strawberries tend to decline after a year. And so I just started pulling them out, although I let some of the runners go. And there's still a couple plants in there. And I'm always pleasantly surprised to walk by and see a strawberry. So I got a few strawberries during spring and summer. But I just figured with all the extra watering, I would just get a year of fruit to help complement the blueberries. And ultimately, the blueberries became big enough that there wasn't really room for the strawberries with them. I have another customer who was an engineer. And he did his blueberries with a carefully formulated planting mix that he and I came up with in very large plastic containers. Each one had one dripper. Uh, his very carefully engineered system, he ran it a few minutes a day. He figured out exactly how long it took to run all the way through the soil and start draining out the bottom. It was like six minutes every day. That was a few years ago. I don't know whether he still has them, but I know he was getting very good yields for at least the first few years. And I should mention, since I often have people wondering, given where they come from, whether they should be in a little bit of shade. So I experimented. Mine are in three are in full sun, two are in light shade. I have always gotten better yields in full sun than in the shade, contrary to my original expectations. Standard advice, and this is important, to only use organic fertilizers on blueberries because those fine roots are very sensitive to nitrate or even ammonia-based fertilizers. And that's what is in most synthetic fertilizers. So you want to use an organic fertilizer if you feed them at all, but oftentimes that compost or whatever you're mulching with will have enough organic fertilizer to take care of them. So I'm not sure where you ever heard that blueberries needed to grow in the shade or originally grew in the shade because the places that they grow are in woods. That's true. But in the woods, there are little openings. And every time there's a little, a little opening there and that sun can get in, oh, there's the blueberry bushes. There's yeah. the huckleberry bushes. In the sunnier part. Yeah. I think, I think it comes from the fact that we're so hot and dry here and it's so dissimilar to where they would originally come from. I get this a lot here in the Valley. People want to know whether they should shade their tomato plants or something. It's so hot here. I said, well, you're uncomfortable. <laughs> but that doesn't mean the plant needs to be in this shape. So, yeah. okay. Okay, well, thank you for all of that. And I do hope you'll do, do a little research and find out about that northern, southern taste thing. I need someone growing northern high bush blueberries to send me some next spring. No, so we You can don't do have to do the tasting <laughs> yourself, Don. I want to. <laughs> we'll have to arrange a late spring Zoom blueberry tasting. Oh, and and send little packets so that yeah. all everybody has the same sit. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Now we'll now, just go by. We... We'll just judge by facial expressions. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore and Lois Richter here at KDRT LP at ninety five point seven in Davis, California.